This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. What do you think of when you remember your kitchen growing up? Do you hear the sound of clanging pots? Do you smell something cooking when you walk past it? Is it chaotic? Is it calming? We asked you to tell us about your mother's kitchen, and here's what you said. The kitchen I grew up in was always filled with smells of some kind of Southern gourmet yumminess. My mother made drop biscuits often, and they were often collard greens, turnip greens, and fried chicken every Sunday after church. I remember a sense of urgency in my mom's kitchen, and I can hear the bubbling of the soup pot. I can smell the tomato paste in the pot. I can hear the sizzling and smell the sizzling of green summer squash. I woke up while I was on vacation with my girlfriend to a smell that I had not smelled since I was 10. One of my girlfriends was making salmon cakes, grits, and eggs, my mother's favorite breakfast. I woke up crying, almost tasting the buttery grits and almost hearing the pat, pat, pat of her putting the cakes together that triggered emotions I had not felt ever. It was beautiful. Hmm. Well, whether your mom was a natural cook or a reluctant one, or someone else was the one throwing down in the kitchen, food and where it's made lives inside of us long after we've eaten. What we inherit from our parents' kitchen and what we pass along in our own as adults is at the center of a new podcast by Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist Michelle Norris. The podcast is called Your Mama's Kitchen. The first episode is a conversation with former First Lady Michelle Obama. We grew up there. We became teenagers, adults. My brother became 6'3", then 6'4", and 6'5", in that small space. But it felt big to us because that's what kitchens do. You know, they can be small and big at the same time. Mm -hmm. We were poor. We packed a lot into that house, into that kitchen. The podcast is from Audible and Higher Ground, Michelle and Barack Obama's media company. Michelle is a columnist for The Washington Post. She's also former host of NPR's All Things Considered and founder of The Race Card Project. After the break, she joins us to talk about the podcast. We also hear stories from you and a very special guest who's near and dear to me. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Let's jump into the conversation and welcome Michelle Norris, who joins us from NPR Studios in New York. Michelle, it is so great to have you. Jen, I am thrilled to be with you. I'm only sorry that we're not together because you can't see the big smile I have (laughs) on my face right now. Same here. Michelle, this sounds like a dream project. When did the seed for this first get planted? 
Well, it's it's funny that I'm back at NPR to talk about this because <laughs> this seed first germinated when I was sitting in a studio at NPR. As you know, when you do mic check, you ask someone to say something about their day. Because I have such a low voice, the engineers often needed to hear the guest talk a little bit longer so they could match the levels. And the standard question that people ask is, what did you have for breakfast? Yep. Yep. And the answer is usually really short. Coffee, toast, nothing, cereal. And I needed to get people to talk a little bit longer. So I would try to get creative with that question. Do you use paper or plastic when you go to the grocery store? What was your favorite vacation? Tell me about your first summer job. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. And that last question was, it had magical properties. Mm-hmm. It, 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 people would just open up. You would, If they were in the studio with me, I could see their body language change. It just was like opening a portal to another place in time. It was like listening to your your listeners when they called in with their stories. Can we just talk a minute about the salmon cakes? I know. When I tell you, I just, I almost teared up myself. <laughs> the salmon the cakes pat, and the pat, pat, pat. Oh, yes. my goodness. And I thought about my mom used to make, my mom still makes salmon cakes. And that pat, 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 pat mm-hmm. just, ta- just took me right back. And so I, I'd always thought that it would be a great idea for a podcast. And... I have, this is my first foray into podcasting. I worked several years in audio, but never as a podcaster. And with Audible and with Higher Ground, we found the right team for this. And the conversations have all been interesting and they have all been so different. It's the same question, but they take us down very different avenues depending on the guest. Well, Michelle, tell me about your mama's kitchen. <laughs> my, my mother, uh, Betty Norris, her kitchen was organized. Her kitchen smelled great. Her kitchen was a place of experimentation. I mean, we had the standard salmon cakes was one of them. We had standard dishes that we had a lot, red beans and rice, often on Tuesdays. Uh, grew up Catholic, fried fish. My mom could put a scald on some fish, fried fish <laughs> on, on Fridays, get that perfect crisp. Um, but, but it was also a place of experimentation. My mom became an adventurous cook. She would, you know, she purchased not just Julia Child, but this book that I still have called Simka's Kitchen. And Simka was one of Julia Child's friends. And she was learning how to, you know, do things in the kitchen that I know she didn't grow up doing. So she, I think, widened our palate because of that. And she also, the kitchen was also a place of joy for us. It's where everything happened. It's where we did our homework. It's where we did craft projects. She let us, you know, be messy in the kitchen with watercolors and finger paints and music and, you know, dancing. My sisters were much older than me um, when I was young, and they used to watch Bandstand. Mm. I used to watch them dance in the kitchen while they were baking something. Uh, She really used the kitchen as a playground for herself, and I think allowed us to use the kitchen as a playground for ourselves. Let's go to another clip from your conversation with Michelle Obama from the first episode. I remember the time, this is when I thought my mother was magical. I was asking for a pre-dinner snack, which was rare. And I was begging her, I was like, I'm starving. Dinner's going to take forever. Can I just get an Oreo? And she said, okay, you can get one Oreo. She was in the living room, Mm. unusually. So I went back into the kitchen. I was like, she's not looking. I'm going to get two Oreos. And I sat there and I ate my one. And she said, I thought I told you to only get one. I was like, How did you know? She said, because you have two Oreo breath. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious what 
what through lines you discovered <laughs> in the stories people told you about their family's kitchen. Well, since we're talking about the Oreos, snacks comes up a lot. Yeah. And we live in a culture of snacking. And for some of the guests who are a little bit older, they talk about how that just wasn't, you just didn't go and throw up in a cupboard and just grab whatever you wanted. Right. You know, particularly if you grew up in, in a you know, you know, household where money might have been tight. You had to ask if you could have some Fritos or Bugles or cookies or, you know, whatever it was. Um, another one of the through lines that I think is interesting is how people learn that people are always watching their parents. And so they learn things that go beyond food. They learn certain habits of life. If if someone has um, a, a certain part of their personality that reflects, you know, integrity, that re- reflects philanthropy, that reflects, you know, the ability to grow money. I mean, a lot of that came out of watching what was happening in the kitchen. How someone could take a little, you know, cookie jar that had a little money in it and grow that in one way or another. And, and those stories come up. And another through line that comes up again and again is how people learn, particularly if they grew up in immigrant households, how the kitchen is a space of, um, it's almost like this this bridge space where people are learning how to be American by experimenting often with American food in the kitchen. But it's also this very safe space where they get to be who they are. Mm. If they were coming from a distant land they don't have to worry about trying to fit in to be an American, whatever that means. They can have a taste of home. They can speak their native language. They can play the music that they love. They can, you know, culturally code switch in some way to to go back to that place that they really miss so much. Well, the podcast, again, is called Your Mama's Kitchen. But, of course, fathers and, and other family members, grandparents, can also be the cooks for the household. Why did you want to focus on mothers? Well, because the the kitchen, you know, I, I know that the title is gendered, and we've had discussions about that, and I realized that I was leaning, leaning into the gendered nature of the space. But if we are honest, the kitchen is a gendered space. And you might not know that from watching food channels, where a lot of the celebrity hosts are men, uh, but when you're looking at home cooks and who's doing the home cooking, I think that has changed, thankfully, that more men are marching gleefully into the kitchen but for a lot of a lot of time the it was expect the expectation was that women would do the cooking in it and i in a lot of households that still is the case and i so i i focused on your mama's kitchen in part because of that but i also focused on the kitchen because there's just so much that happens in a kitchen the kitchen is the heart of a home it is the beating heart of a household it's where everyone gathers and it's where everything happens. There are things that happen in the kitchen that don't happen in the dining room, even though they're often right next to each other. Things that happen in the kitchen that not in the living room. And so I wanted to use it as a window to look at family dynamics and cultural dynamics and how people became who they are. Now, coming up, you'll hear a conversation I had with a very special guest about her kitchen, my mom. We'll be back with that conversation and a lot more from you in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from the Kresge Foundation. 
Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the discussion with this message we got from one of you. As a child of the 70s with working parents, I remember in the kitchen, uh, we had a picnic table. Um, My mom watched TV and smoked cigarettes. Uh, We had lots of frozen dinners. And I would fall asleep in front of Barney Miller or various other 70s sitcoms. And that is a warm but very different, I'm sure, memory of my 70s mother's kitchen. Michelle, not everyone has memories of uh, someone cooking wholesome or decadent meals in the kitchen. Maybe their parents weren't big cooks or the best cooks. How often did you run up against those types of stories? We hear those stories, too, and I welcome them because I want to talk to all kinds of people about all kinds of experiences. And I also recognize that the kitchen is not always a place of plenty. Mm. There, you know, in this land of plenty, there are too many people who, too many children who go to bed hungry, too many people who don't have enough in the cupboard or enough in the refrigerator. And I hope that over time, our conversations reflect that and and maybe encourage people to talk about that and think about that. But we have heard from people whose mothers were experimental home cooks who had, you know, fancy gadgets and um, and, and, and could just, you know, single-handedly feed the masses. <laughs> and as if it was, you know, a miracle on the order of loaves and fishes. <laughs> and and then there are, we talked to W. Kamal Bell, the comedian, the uh, TV host, the intellectual. And his mom uh, was a publisher. She was an academic. She was doing a lot of stuff and didn't have a lot of time to cook. And so he talked about how... The kitchen was a cherished space for him. She was just in a hurry. So he said a lot of times their meals were, um, he called it beanie weenies, that his mom would open up a can of baked beans and slice up some hot dogs and season it somehow and put it in a, in a some sort of casserole and put it under the oven. And he loves that, you know, and he's now a big gourmet cook. And it's not the kind of thing that he probably would feed his kids. But he said that's such a wonderful memory for him. So it wasn't the quality of the food. It was the love that went into it, the love that, you know, was really the most important ingredient. And and when I mentioned W. Kamal Bell, there's one other thing I should say about the quality of the cooking or just the recipes that people use. You asked about through lines. A lot of people talk about the recipes that they lost because they're – you know, some of us have recipe cards. I have some of my mother's recipe cards, and I cherish them because they're in her handwriting. Her beautiful penmanship is evident there on that recipe card. But in some cases, everything lived in mama's head or everything lived in grandma's head or auntie's head. And so when they passed away, they took those recipes with them. Yeah, yeah. And we hear a lot about that, and it makes me think, you know, when you're with your family, go and watch them when they cook. So you're, because that's your history, right? That's part of your legacy, your culinary history. So make sure that we capture those recipes and and somehow um, write it down. But not everything can be written down because 
they're often doing things in the kitchen where you know it's it's the technique is such that it's not even in a it's not even on a recipe card. You just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know? I do know. I know very well. And and your podcast inspired me to call my mom in Michigan because I wanted to ask her about her kitchen and her relationship with cooking. Hello, daughter dear. <laughs> Okay, so if you think about, okay, remember the big brown dining room table that we had on Pressed? Mm-hmm. If that table could tell the story of what food meant in our family, what do oh, you think boy. it would say? It would say that it always has delicious food on it and people around it who enjoy the food. That was more generous than what I was thinking. I thought that table would be like, help! <laughs> Sometimes it would be full of pizzas and we'd get around the table and everybody would participate and make pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, with your dough that you would make from scratch and your tomato yeah. sauce that you would make from scratch and all the toppings. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I'm getting hungry. W- w- <laughs> where did you learn to cook, Mommy? I did take one cooking class uh, when I was in the sixth grade. But before then, um, I remember being with my grandmother in the kitchen and she would have this box that she would stand me on because I was about uh, five years old. And whatever she was doing, she would let me, you know, put my, get my hands into it. She was making biscuits or whatever. Um, she would let me participate. So um, that's what I, how I started learning to cook. What, what do you think you learned about cooking from her and what it means to be a good cook? That's what she earned her living doing was was cooking, and she just seemed to enjoy it. And she, you know, she just whatever she had, and which sometimes wasn't a lot, she would figure out something to to you know how to how to use it. I think that's one of the the major things I learned from you in the kitchen, watching you cook, cooking with you, is how to be an intuitive cook. Mm -hmm. Uh, how to kind of work with what I have, how to balance out flavors. Because Lord, no, Mama, you don't keep a recipe. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) You don't keep a recipe. Even now I'll call you, I'll say, Mom, I'm making, you know, this dish. How much of this do you put in? And you're like, enough? (laughs) Mommy, that's not a a measurement. Enough is not a measurement. For me it is, though. And, And, well, my recipes... They change because I'm always trying to improve on what I do. So, you know, I'm always thinking about how can I make this better? Mm. Like if we, if I go out to eat, I'm not just eating. I'm trying to figure out how they made it and how I could make it. Right. So, And that got us exposed to a lot of different food when we were growing mm-hmm. up. So, you know, Middle Eastern food, you taste and then recreate it at home, Indian food, I mean, yeah. really, every everything, mm-hmm. everything. Is there something in the kitchen, either like a piece of equipment or a certain pot or pan that is something you, you just can't live without? It's like, I have to have at least this thing to feel like I'm cooking well. Well, I, I love using my cast iron skillets. I like my, my blender. But a lot of things I do, I do the old-fashioned way. I have an air fryer, but I don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> One of my 
favorite memories growing up is walking home from school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we were coming down the block, if it was because you bake your own bread and if it was a bread baking day, you could smell the bread up the block. You could smell it. And we, we'd get home and there would be like a, a hot loaf coming out of the oven and you would slice us a thick slice and slather it with butter and yep. honey and our friends would try to convince us to smuggle slices out the back door to them. <laughs> we could have had a racket going just selling your yeah, bread out I, the back door. And I, and, and I still bake. I still bake my own bread. Yeah, I haven't stopped. Yeah, I just don't do it as I don't do it often because I don't have seven children <laughs> and right. a husband, husband to prepare bread for, which I would do like twice a week. You know. And we used to go through that bread. It mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, used to go did. through it so fast. <laughs> when I think back to the times we spent in the kitchen together, and we still spend in the kitchen together, mm-hmm. what lessons did you hope I learned through cooking with you, whether it was about food or just about life? Sharing the gift of cooking is like a gift. When you know when you when you when you cook for other people, um, I would hope that you would learn that um, from me, and just uh, um, letting your creativity show up in in, in what you prepare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, creativity and cheering definitely definitely learn that. All right. Well, next time we see each other, what do you want me to make for you? My the muffins. Okay. <laughs> Your favorite muffins, Mama. That's yeah. so easy. That's it. Just the muffins. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I asked for when we were together recently. Okay. Remember? Yeah, yeah. I remember. Okay. I'll mm-hmm. have some muffins for you when mm-hmm. you come. All right. I love you. I love you too. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was my mom, Bessie White, and we will share that muffin recipe on the website, the one org. So, Michelle, thank you first for inspiring. That conversation, I, I said, I have to have to talk to my mom about the kitchen, and I mentioned having to unlearn cooking meals for you know nine people. But is there anything you discovered in these conversations about what people have to unlearn when it comes to food or life? Well, first of all, I just have to say that I loved <laughs> loved listening to your conversation with Miss Bessie. So much wisdom there, so much love between the two of you, and just so vivid. I mean, I can picture you, I can picture that big dining room table heaving (laughs) under the weight of of all that food, but also telling such a beautiful family story. We do learn a little bit about what what people have to unlearn, and it often has to do with portions. Mm. Yeah. You know, we talked to Glennon Doyle and and Abby Wambach, and um, in their marriage, they have to deal with issues from a very different perspective around food. You know, and one of them always worried that she's eating too much and one of them struggling with eating too much and having to sort of unlearn things that they picked up when they were kids. I mean, they they realized the source of this, you know, Abby grew up in a household much like yours, seven kids, a lot of food on the table, expectation that you that you had to eat all of it. And Glennon Doyle grew up in a household with uh, parents who were very weight conscious, mm. and over time she became very weight conscious. Not certain if that was because of her parents, but she just did, and has always been concerned about portions. And so the two of them talking really honestly about how they work that out, 
you know, in a household where the kids have to get fed, you know, so they have to set aside whatever it is that they're working out to make sure that the kids get fed. So, yeah, sometimes people um, do have to unlearn things, but more often than not, Jen, people are trying to make a pilgrimage back to the, the food of their youth because maybe they didn't spend as much time listening or standing at the stove, and they're trying to figure out how to capture that delicious smell, that that recipe that they wish they would have learned, and they're now trying to trying to master that. We're going to take a quick break here, but up next, we talk more about race, identity, and the conversations we have in the kitchen. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Let's get back to the conversation with this email we got from MG, who says, The house I grew up in was a sprawling one-story bungalow in Miami. The kitchen was mom's room of her own. Her favorite color was a shocking pink, so all the Formica cabinets were shocking pink. The countertops were a lighter pink. The walls were covered with a splashy, flowery print. People were always shocked when they saw this vibrant kitchen, but they were always delighted by the wonderful smells. Mom was a great cook. Her lasagna was to die for. Michelle, you were talking about how the kitchen is a gendered space. And for many women, especially in past generations, it wasn't politically neutral. What expectations have been placed on women when it comes to their roles in and out of the kitchen? Well, the kitchen was the place where they had to work. They had to produce meals, usually three of them. And uh, also, you know, special meals from the holidays. They had to feed multitudes during the holidays. They had to find that food. Um, If you were in the city, that meant going to the grocery store. If you were in the country, that meant, you know, procuring it in other ways from the field or from, you know, other families that you grew one thing and they grew another and a barter system may have been at work. Uh, And lots of other things happened in the kitchen. The laundry room was often close to the kitchen. Um, There are other things that that happened, you know, around trying to just keep the household together. Mm -hmm. And there was the expectation that the the woman was going to do that. Men are included in this in ways. You see it in advertising. You see it, you know, as I mentioned, professional chefs tend to be men that we see on television. But there was a great deal of expectation on women. It got a little bit easier when convenience cooking was introduced and frozen meals and, you know, the, the refrigerator section and then the frozen food section of the, of the grocery store got bigger and bigger and bigger and people could make convenience foods. But that didn't necessarily lighten the load for women. It just meant that they had a little bit more time on their hands, but it was still, it wasn't that dad was going into the kitchen and, and doing this kind of work. We talked to Michael Pollan and, and he is such a, you know, deep thinker around how we eat 
and what we eat. And he had really interesting things to say about that, that we kind of blew it, he says, when the women's movement first um, was introduced and really became popularized as this, you know, this sort of cultural moment in the 1970s, that that really would have been a moment to democratize the kitchen space. And and that, that really, you know, that really didn't happen. I'm not sure it's happened now. I mean, I'm married to a man like I love, you know, that I love like my next breath. And he cooks. And I have raised sons who cook. They can throw down in the kitchen. But I think in the main, the expectation, you know, when, when people ask what's what's for dinner, who does everybody look at when they ask that question? <laughs> <laughs> you don't look at dad and say, hey, dad, what's for, what's for dinner? It's usually, you know... The the expectation is that mom is going to answer this question. Let's hear one more clip from the first episode with Michelle Obama. What I remember with every meal, it seemed like there was this big leftover tradition, takeaway tradition, because you had to cook enough, but then everybody had to get a plate, right, afterwards. <laughs> and getting the plate just seemed like it was such a big it deal, was a right? Big deal. No, no, not that plate. Get your no, plate. And, and did you get a plate? Yeah. And you get in trouble if you didn't get a plate. Because, well, how am I going to keep... We have too many ribs. Did everybody get a plate? When I tell you I laughed out loud (laughs) at this part of the pop, in part because I don't know how everybody's family rolls, but there are some family members who will make the takeaway plate first, set that aside, and then actually go make the plate that they're going to eat. (laughs) Yes, yes, or bring their own... It used to be Tupperware. Now they bring their own Gladware. Show up with not just a plate, but like a covered plastic container because they're planning to go home with something heavy. <laughs> right, but it, but that's part of the joy of those yeah, gatherings. Yeah. And and food in the black community, it's a central theme in this first episode. You've covered race and identity for years as the founder of the Race Card Project and now as a columnist for the Washington Post. What did you discover about how race and culture shapes our experience in the kitchen? In you know, fundamental ways. I mean, it's it's part of our identity journey through food, but also where the food comes from, who's cooking the food. Um, the the recipes, you know, the American palate is significantly influenced by people who did not come here on their own. You know, mm-hmm. it, black Americans have contributed, and if you read Isabel Wilkerson's wonderful book, The Warmth of Other Suns, she breaks that down in a really beautiful way. And so food is a, 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 a racialized space in many cases, but it also cuts across class. It cuts across, you know, the immigrant experience. And the lessons that people take, I mean, one of the things that we talk about in the first episode with Michelle Obama, the former first lady, is getting your hair done in the kitchen. Oh, yes. Visceral response to the smell of the pressing comb, the grease. Like, I I had to pause. <laughs> that that sizzle, <laughs> the sizzle, getting those edges laid. Yes, indeed. Uh, Michelle, give us an idea of who you talk to. You've you named a, a couple of people who are participating in the podcast. Uh, CBS Mornings' Gail King will be on next week's episode. Who else will we hear from? We'll hear from. Can I answer that question in just a minute? I just have to go back to the Wonder Bread. Oh yeah, the white bread on top of. The, my mom used to do that. Was sometimes when she'd make red sauce, and you know, too much oil sometimes would 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 float to the yeah. top. She would let us put a piece of bread on top of the oil to sop up the oil. And and because nothing was wasted in our house, then we got to eat that basically oily tomatoey piece of bread. And it was good. Wasn't and it was it? really good. <laughs> but what it did is it took the sort of oil content out of the sauce, and it was and so that that brought me down memory lane. But the guests, 
So yes, we hear from, we hear from Gail King, we hear from the DJ D Nice, W Kamal Bell, Matthew Broderick, Andy Garcia. We've talked to several people in the food community, uh, Dory Greenspan, Michael Pollan. Jose Andreas tells us wonderful stories, and you listen to him talk about growing up in Spain, and you get a sense of why he has the big, huge heart that he has. His mm-hmm. parents were both nurses. They were always taking care of people. And as someone who now we see him, he's his team is in Maui right now, you know, feeding people. He runs toward danger. He runs toward disaster. You get a sense of where that came from growing up in a household where his parents were often feeding other people, but always thinking about other people. So we have a, you know, a range of guests um, who tell wonderful stories. And in almost every case, I guarantee that even though you think you may know this person, because most of the people that we've talked to so far are very well known, you will hear them talk about something that they've never talked about before, because this is an aspect of their lives. Even for the people who are from the food community, Bryant Terry, because we're asking a different kind of question, not just what do you cook professionally, but tell me about your mom's kitchen. What was going on there? And Bryant Terry... His parents worked, so he was in his grandmother's kitchen, and we learn about how he became a vegan. And Tayari Jones, the author, uh, grew up in Atlanta during the time of the Atlanta child murders. Mm. So we learn about what was happening in her mom's kitchen as feminism comes along and sort of changed the rules of the game about expectations in that family household, but also what was going on outside the kitchen window when she could no longer go out to play because children were disappearing in her neighborhood. So the conversations are different, and they're all delicious. Oh, Michelle, I can't wait to hear all of these conversations. Michelle Norris is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist and columnist for The Washington Post. She's a former host of NPR's All Things Considered. Her new podcast with Audible is called Your Mama's Kitchen. You can listen to a new episode each week wherever you get your podcasts. Michelle, it was so great to speak with you. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.